This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It happens to be Pentecost Sunday in the year B cycle of the lectionary. That happens to be May 23rd, 2021. Today, as I look at this passage, I want us to focus less on the people in this passage and the events in this passage, and to perhaps focus on something that we may not pay a lot of attention to in this passage, and that is the message itself, the proclamation that comes forth from Peter on this day of Pentecost. Now, to do this, I want to look at three different ways in which we might understand this proclamation. First of all, how is the message proclaimed? And secondly, I want to talk about what is proclaimed. And third, and finally, we'll address who proclaims it. Now, if we turn our attention first to how this message is proclaimed, the, the proclamation on this day of Pentecost is really grounded in the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about how the message is proclaimed, while we can see individuals like Peter and others that are the medium of the proclamation, the proclamation itself really comes from a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that comes now to reside upon the apostles that have gathered together in this room, and we don't know what room it is. Oftentimes we assume it's the upper room, but that may not be the case. But it needs to be said that the proclamation and the coming of the Spirit work together. Jesus has been resurrected for 50 days, 50 days since the resurrection, and Peter and the other disciples have not made any proclamation yet. The proclamation comes with the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit falls on the church, then the word begins to come forth. And this particular text in Acts is, of course, very well known for being Pentecost, the birthday of the church. But this text is not really written in what I would say is the most clear fashion. It, it, there's lots of confusion going on here. There's people speaking in languages that are not their own. There are are people hearing things in their own language. There are all sorts of uh, biblical and historical connections going on in this story that make it rich and meaningful, but at the same time a little bit confusing. So let's talk a little bit more about how this message is proclaimed and, and pull these threads apart. The first things that happens in, in this part of Acts is that the, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, brings a manifestation of the proclamation is what what's described as various tongues. And so immediately when we see the word tongues, we think of some sort of ecstatic or Pentecostal, as we would describe it, experience. And there are other experiences like this. We can read in Acts chapter 10 about how the Holy Spirit fell upon the house of Cornelius. And when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they began to speak in other tongues. We can read about Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, 12, even through 13 and 14, about speaking in tongues in churches and how this regulation of the speaking in tongues needs to be uh, carefully, carefully looked at within the Corinthian community. In this passage in Acts 2, 
it appears we're not looking at an ecstatic expression of some kind of unintelligible speech that would need interpretation. In Acts 10 and in 1 Corinthians, we read about an ecstatic expression of tongues. It's an unintelligible speech. It, it's not in any particular language, and it requires some form of interpretation, the Apostle Paul tells us. Now, in this passage in Acts 2, the apostles and, and Peter is especially given an utterance in which those who do not speak um, the, uh, the, the language that is spoken in Jerusalem can hear it in their own native language. The speaking in tongues in Acts 2 has as much to do with the proclamation that is offered as to those who are able to hear the message itself. And the meaning here is rich, and the, and the syntax of how Luke describes this is critically important. It talks about how people in the story heard the message in their own language. It required no interpretation. It wasn't unintelligible speech. The miracle is that each person could hear it in their own language as coming forth from people who could not speak their language. There's this long list that Luke includes in chapter 2 of Acts, beginning at verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea. They all, they all can hear this in their own language. So the, the miracle isn't this ecstatic expression of speech that we think of commonly today as speaking in tongues or some kind of prayer language. No, it's a proclamation. The proclamation comes in a way in which people can hear it. So there's been lots of meaning attached to this by theologians and scholars over the years. Some would say that this is kind of a, a reverse form of what happens in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel in which everyone's language is uh, confused and no one can understand each other. And that may certainly be true, but it would seem like if this is the meaning Luke is driving for, uh, he might make it a little bit more explicit and clear. Others would argue that this um, proclamation that comes forth from the Spirit and even the coming of the Spirit itself is a, like a new form of the Sinai covenant given to Moses. After all, they are gathering at the Feast of Pentecost, which within the Jewish tradition is called the Festival of Weeks. And later in the Jewish tradition, this Festival of Weeks would come to signify a memorial or remembrance of when Moses receives the law, or the Ten Commandments as we commonly call it, on Mount Sinai. Both of these meanings may be true, that there may be kind of a reverse form of the Tower of Babel here. There may be... Um, a new way in which God is giving this new law, which isn't a law at all. It's the spirit that is now uh, an upgrade, if you will, from Mosaic law. These may be true, but Luke doesn't really attach a lot of significance or meaning to any of these biblical connections. What Luke has in mind here and what is central to this story is the animating power of the Holy Spirit. Luke pays tremendous attention to the classic forms of epiphany in this particular story, that there's wind and fire and noise and commotion and disorientation. This looks so much like other passages we know in Scripture where the Spirit makes a manifestation, whether it's with Elijah or with Elisha, whether it's with Moses. No matter where we look in the Bible where we see these kind of cataclysmic moments in which God erupts into human history, Luke takes great care to make sure that we see this 
particular passage in that same light. What matters here when we talk first about how the message is proclaimed is this, and the key passage for us is the communal and individual experience of the Spirit is requisite for proclaiming the gospel. We can only share what we've experienced. We cannot share what we have simply known. We can share what we've experienced. Let's keep in mind, 50 days have passed since the resurrection of Jesus, and there's not been one proclamation on the part of the disciples. They've actually been in hiding. It's when the Spirit comes that they speak with power. And what Luke is telling us in the, in the text here is that communal and individual experience of the Spirit is requisite. It's required in order to proclaim the gospel. The work of the church cannot happen without the Spirit. Well, let's turn for a moment to look at what is proclaimed. What is proclaimed? And what is proclaimed here is fascinating as we move into the second chapter of Acts and really the rest of the book of Acts. Rudolf Bultmann talks about the importance of how uh, at this moment in Acts 2, we see a movement happening in the proclamation that we move from Jesus as the proclaimer to now Jesus is the proclaimed. We make a movement from Jesus as proclaimer, in other words, the one proclaiming the message itself, to now being the one proclaimed. Peter's sermon is a classic style. It is not particularly super innovative. It's a classic rhetorical style within the first century world. He describes first what is happening. In other words, we're not all drunk as you think we are. Peter then talks about what it means, and he goes on to cite passages from the book of Joel and Amos and talking about this coming of the Holy Spirit, how God is uh, this is a fulfillment of God's promise to pour out the Spirit on all humankind. But then Peter gets to the bottom line at the end of the sermon, which isn't part of the reading in this particular text, and that it ends with a, a call to action, what to do, that we're to repent, we're to be baptized, and we're to receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of talk oftentimes in the book of Acts, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or being baptized with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is that neither of these phrases occurs in the book of Acts. Now, John the Baptist in the Gospels addresses a baptism with the Holy Spirit. But in Acts, we read nothing of that. We read of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but not the baptism of it. And it's interesting, if you want to do more research on this, that, that, that Luke goes to actually great care to not talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter's sermon is a classic style saying, this is what you see happening. This is an outpouring of God's Spirit. Peter then talks about what it means and gives this history of the interaction of uh, the establishment with Jesus Christ as a historical figure, even a political figure. And then he puts this call to action out, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. The proclamation here is a powerful proclamation because how do a bunch of Galileans, the people Jesus called to be his disciples, go from all of these various jobs that they have, you know, fishermen, you know, whatever it is that they used to do, to now proclaimers of the message. 
It's a radical reorientation that's going on, and it's the Holy Spirit that does this. What is proclaimed is Jesus. Jesus is at the very heart of the proclamation. And when we think about the key passage in this text, it's this, that Jesus is the very heart of Christian proclamation and that there is no proclamation without Jesus. Here's what we learn in Acts. There are 28 different speeches that are given in Acts. 28 different speeches, and some are given by Peter, some are given by Paul, some are given by other leaders, but Acts contains 28 speeches, and in every single one of them, the name of Jesus is invoked. In every single one of them, the name of Jesus is invoked. Acts knows no proclamation absent Jesus. Jesus is at the very heart of what's proclaimed, and What's proclaimed about Jesus is not only the interactions that the political powers and the religious powers had with him. What's proclaimed about Jesus is the experience of him. Peter talks about his experience of Jesus. Later on, when we read some of Paul's speeches in the book of Acts, he talks about how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He speaks out of the richness of his experience. So, so the proclamation itself is, is not a, a strictly a theological excursion. It is an experiential excursion. In that way, what Luke frames for us in Acts is that the proclamation Acts is a form of narrative. It's a form of storytelling. So that really takes us from how the message is proclaimed and what is proclaimed in the message to finally this, who proclaims it? Well, here our focus just for a moment is on Peter, and, and this is important about Peter. Let's keep in mind that 53 days earlier, 53 days earlier from this very episode we're reading in Acts 2, he denied even knowing Jesus to a young servant on the night Jesus was arrested. Not only does he deny him there, he denies him two more times. See, this reversal for Peter is important, and it's really not so much about Peter as it's about the power of the Holy Spirit. How could someone who 53 days earlier rejects three different opportunities to proclaim the name of Jesus, that's when Peter denies him three times, how could 53 days earlier a person move from that place to this place? He proclaims the word of Jesus with boldness. But it's not only Peter who proclaims it. Remember, there were those who were there that heard the word proclaimed. This mixed bag of people from all over the ancient world, Parthians, Mede, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, the list goes on. And it's a mixture of geographic locations and ethnicities that Luke uh, list out here, and the list he makes makes no sense at all. It's just this random list of things. They're the ones who heard it in their own language. This is important. You see, the connection here is the Spirit, not Peter. The hearers are on the receiving end of the connection. Peter simply faithfully does what he's called to do, and God gives the proclamation. God is the one that moves in the hearts and the lives of the hearers to receive it. This is so critically important for us to hear. It is not ours to persuade. It is the Spirit's work to persuade. 
It is our work simply to proclaim. Because honestly, what good is the message if it's not heard? And the only way we can ensure that it's heard is by recognizing that the Holy Spirit is at work in those who are listening, who are hearing it. You see, the key passage here is that the Holy Spirit animates us to proclaim the good news. Our job is not to guarantee how it's received. It's simply to proclaim. And Acts tells the story about how this happens. And there's so much we can surmise about our purpose as a church from this text. There are many different threads that we could proclaim here that help us understand the very mission of the church in the world. But suffice it to say this, that ours is the work of proclamation in word and deed, and that our proclamation always includes Jesus at the very heart of what we have to share with others and that we let the Holy Spirit do the persuasive work. There's no need to cajole. There's no need to manipulate. It's the Spirit who shapes the proclamation in the hearts who hear it. So may we as a church be about this work of proclamation, faithfully offering Jesus every way we can, not worrying about how it's heard, not worrying about how it's received, but trusting that to the power of the Holy Spirit. May we seek that power each and every day in our lives to allow the proclamation to go forth from us with a sense of grace, a sense of love, a sense of acceptance for this world, knowing that God is the one who shapes it within people. It's the proclamation that matters. And when the moment comes for us to make it, may we each step into it with the fullness of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. May it be so. Thanks for listening and God bless you. We'll see you again next time.